a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey everyone, welcome back. Nathan Romus with you. Today we're going to be talking about firearms and tactics training. Uh, more from the perspective of the human mind and some of the cognitive architecture. I just wanted to use that word because it's a smart couple words and I'll probably never get to use them again. Uh, for that, I brought Dustin Salomon on the program. Dustin is a former naval officer and security contractor. He developed the weapons and security training programs at multiple military commands while on active duty and is presently active as a consultant in the field of firearms and tactical training design. He has also written seven books on the application of neuroscience and psychology research to training design and is the inventor of Neuro Shooting System and the founder of Building Shooters Technology, LLC. So welcome, Dustin. Well, thanks. Great to be here. Appreciate the uh, invite. And I want to make sure I said the last name right, right? It's Salomon. Yeah. Okay. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Like like the uh, ski boots, sadly, no relation. Yeah. I'd be uh, probably on a slope somewhere. It's to say minus all the money <laughs> you could be making. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Minus all the royalty money, no relation, unfortunately. Um, I'm glad to have you here because uh, I have a, you know, usually when we talk tactics and training, uh, firearm stuff, it's what kind of drills can I do and, and how can I do those better? But right. we're going to be focused a lot on the brain today. Uh, so we'll get into that, but just going to start with you. And if you could tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into this world, uh, talking about you know cognitive architecture, those kind of things. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Um, so uh, like the bio side, I was, I was a regular Navy dude. Um, went to the, went to and graduated from the Naval Academy, um, in Annapolis and was on a shooting team, which what at the time was called the combat pistol team, um, when I was there. And so graduated with, not that we were really good, but like, a, you know, let's call it a professional, like armed professional level of, of skill, particularly with handguns. Um, uh, went to buds, quit in hell weeks, so obviously ended up in the, uh, in the surface fleet and, uh, when I got there, it was kind of shocking. Um, you know, you're, you're not even sometimes given bullets on watch, you know, like no, you oh. just get a gun, no rounds, like nobody's loading guns. Even if you got bullets, right? like no, nothing is loaded. Um, you know, <laughs> this was training, right. But we went to do a boarding and I go down to the armory and they handed me a clipboard. I'm like, Oh, what is this? They're like you're an officer. <laughs> I don't want a clipboard or not just a clipboard. Yeah. Um, and, uh, anyway, so the Navy, this wasn't the, the firearm stuff. Wasn't something the Navy took very seriously. Um, the U S coal obviously got, got blown up there about a year after I got to the fleet, or I guess it was maybe six, eight months after I got to the fleet. Um, and not, I, I don't know that this really would have made a difference, right? But one of the things that came out of the after action from that was that nobody had any loaded weapons mm. right while they're pulling in um and so there's kind of a recognition that you know particularly as the the, the gwat you know, was kind of spinning up in that time frame that perhaps we should have the capacity for uh you know self-defense um yeah, it would help if it's you know i mean you know it's 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 useful um 
So, but but there there was just come a complete lack of corporate knowledge, um, really on how to do this. I mean, the the, the actual process for qualification that was used, not this wasn't what was in the instructions, like you know the the Navy you know regs, but what was actually used. You go out on the flight deck underway. Some a gunner's mate would load a gun, hand it to you, like right on the edge of the on the edge of the you know flight deck. Mm-hmm. Shoot five rounds if you manage to hit the ocean you qualified and <laughs> hand it back to them and you're done. Right. And that was like the pinnacle of what the surface Navy did for the most part in terms of like actually in the fleet. Mm. Um, so there was just a, a, and that had been going on for, for quite some time. Right. So you've got this huge gap of corporate knowledge related to small arms and related tactics and stuff like that. There were a couple of schools that sometimes people would get to go to, you know, like uh, there's a five day shooting school called um, SSCW, which, you know, wasn't a great school. And, you know, you go to, five days of training and don't do anything else for 15 years, your, your level of retention is pretty low. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I, I had the, I happened to be the gunnery officer really through no particular, you know, reason, right. That just happened to be what my billet was. It wasn't cause I was, you know, in the shooting or anything. And, um, so I was responsible for getting 200 people, you know, 200 odd people, right. Trained and, and ready to stand watch. And, you know, I took what, what we would still generally consider a standard approach to that. So I came up with this weapons training block and scripted it out and came up with the ammo I would need. And I sent an ammo request and I went down to the on-base range, right? We were in Mayport. I was homeported in Mayport, Florida at the time on a frigate and went down to the on-base range and tried to schedule, you know, like two weeks on the range or something. They just, they're just, laugh, they're just laughing at me. It's like, dude. I, I don't remember the dates, right? But let, let's just say no, August 15th was the day all the guns had to be loaded, yeah. like by Navy directive. They're like, dude, like we don't even have any available range time until like November. Oh, wow. You know, and it's like the summertime. And I'm like, okay, so I got no range, right? The, the Navy, Service Navy, I turn to my request, which they're just laughing, right? Because like I'm, you know, I'm trying to do like a legitimate weapons training package. And, you know, they're like, no, bro, <laughs> this, this is not happening. <laughs> You know, so like my, my, and I ended up getting some more ammo than this, but my, my allowance was 2000 rounds, right? Run the math, 2000 rounds wow. for 200 people. Yeah. Right. That's not enough to run even a fifth of the qual course one time yeah. per person. Right. Um, and so I, I was in the situation, which I've since learned that basically most armed professionals are in, which is I don't have really good range access. I don't have access to ammunition. Right. I've got a lot of people, right. All of whom have other jobs, only a few of whom even care about this subject matter. Right. Mm -hmm. And nonetheless, like this is still a part of their job and I'm the guy responsible for making sure that, that they're able to do it at least to the the best of my ability. So what I ended up coming up with was eight hours of dry fire training that we ran in the helicopter hangar. Okay. Um, I didn't think it was good training. It wasn't like I could get guys for eight hours. Right. So I could only get them for like one day at a time or not one day, but like a, an hour at a time. Right. And I'm like fighting with the chiefs to, you know, for them to let people go to come to this training. Cause everyone's like, I don't understand. Like, why don't we just shoot five rounds off the fan tip when we get underway or just, just sign the quals. Why don't you just do that? I'm like, no. So anyway, did, we, we kind of, we kind of muddled through that, did the best I could with what I had. Didn't think it was very good. Um, the Navy kind of in the, in the same time frame, stood up what was, the the first active component of what is now the expeditionary warfare group um which was called mobile security i don't even think the command exists anymore uh at least by that name but 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to one of the East Coast attachments as the operations officer as that command was getting stood up. And we had a very force protections, like our whole mission was force protection, right? Um, so it was, there was a lot of battles to kind of justify resources, but, you know, it was, it was because it was our full-time job, I was able to do that um, at least to some degree. And If I could jump in too, yeah. are people wondering as you're doing this, like, why is this guy so into the shooting or like getting us more shooting when we're in the Navy? Or can you explain for maybe even the audience who's wondering that too, like, Right, we're on boats. Like, why do we need to do a call? Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's. I mean, this is subject matter I've always been pretty passionate passionate about, right? Like, I had, I had the underlying baseline of knowledge from when I was a, you know, the, being on that shooting team at school. Yeah, uh, my dad um, is now retired, right? He was a law enforcement guy, um, and you know, had been in a shooting, right? So I had a lot of touch points to, you know what is actually required in the event that you need to use these skills. Yeah. Right. Like it wasn't like I was, you know, some super skilled, you know, experienced guy, but I had enough touch points to realize that shooting five rounds off the fantail where somebody else loads the gun for you, that's probably not getting us there. Yeah. Right. Like, and, and, you know, we, and we also legitimately, particularly, you know, leaving the ship and going to the security that like our job is to go to dangerous places and protect stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. And we should probably know how to at least load and unload these things that we're carrying around, right? At the very least. Um, it's funny when you say that. Yeah. Because like a lot of it, it, it 100% crosses over into the law enforcement. 100%. We have people to this day, you can see when they pull a gun out of their holster, it's like they've never seen it before. Yep. <laughs> and it could be, you know, 15, 20 years in. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of people don't realize that. I mean, there are. You know, like some of the agencies I've been working with recently, working on the training design stuff, and you know, like for example, there is you know uh, one of them's issuing patrol rifles and instructors. Like you know, a significant amount of people, like when they come back to in service, right, they have to qualify in this every year. We have to reshow them how to load and unload it. Yeah, you know, that, that's obviously not everybody. There are people that are very highly skilled, but people that are very highly skilled in these fields. For the most part, unless they're in some specialized unit that shoots all the time, like it's in spite of the training that they get, not because of the training that they get. Yeah. You know, like because the training is not capable of producing competence for, for the most part. I mean, that's that's a very broad brushstroke statement, mm-hmm. right? Um, but but in most agencies, that's that's the case. And that's um anyway, so we'll we'll get to how I got there uh here. Let me let me stop talking about myself here as soon as I can. But um so uh, I was at security debt. Uh, we had a force protection specific mission. Um, almost everybody at the command was already a military police officer before they showed up, right? Because we were mo- we had mostly mastered arms, which is the Navy's, you know, Navy's what the Navy calls MPs. Um, and uh, so they're already police officers before they show up, badge qualified, you know, been the Leonard Wood and all that stuff. Um, they went to all of the Navy's new shooting schools that they'd put together post nine, uh, post post call and post nine eleven. And then uh, they did a two-week weapons training package with the Marine Corps Weapons Training Battalion in Quantico. And then I got them at the end for a one-week like what advanced weapons training block that I ran um, for each of our teams. Mm-hmm. And when I got them, most, not all, but most of them did not have even a consistent grip on the handgun, right? And I'm like, you know, we have put, the Navy has put a lot of resources 
into training these guys. We haven't tried to make them into, you know, tier one assaulters, but they should have consistent grip on the handgun and they don't. Yeah. Right. And that is that if you get, you know, if you're an instructor, right, you run a training program and you have one guy that's just wandering around like a soup sandwich, like, okay, maybe that dude's just jacked up and he needs to go away. But when everybody's screwed up, that's probably your fault. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, and, and because there's something wrong with the training process or something wrong with the program, right? Like what you're doing isn't working, whether it's, you don't have enough resources or your processes are screwed up or whatever. And, and so that was kind of a very big slap in the face to me of like, you know, because the reality was, is I wasn't seeing, there was some difference, but like not a significant difference in skill level between people that were military police officers before they did, you know, four to six weeks of additional weapons training or five, whatever it was. Um, and then came to me versus guys that just got eight hours in the helicopter hangar. Okay. Dry fire. Okay. And then maybe one range day. Right. And so I'm like, there's a tremendous difference in how much resource has been put into these people and not a whole lot of difference in outcomes. So that really got me curious. I'm like, why did what I do that I didn't even think was good? Why did that work so much better than what we've done over here, which is sort of the standard, really even today is the standard approach to training. Is it like, so even if the amount of hours is increasing or the number of days that they're doing these things, you weren't seeing like that big of a jump in the the quality of output, I guess. In the quality and in the retention, right? And, and that, there's, yeah. so there. There's a lot of reasons that happens, or right? I'm sure most of the listeners are probably familiar with, you know, for science, Dr. Walensky and the for science Institute, and they've done, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the, in the past few years, I guess it's been, been more than that now since their training, their initial training studies came out, right? But they did training on like, you know, retention, right? Skill retention for officers coming out of the Academy and it's abysmal. Yeah. Um, it, you know, and it's not, it's not necessary. I mean, some of it may be because techniques that are being taught that aren't very good or whatever, but it is the training processes that we use that just don't work. Um, they're, 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 they're invalid, right? They don't match how the brain receives and stores information. And so, you know, the, there is, and there's a couple of components to that, right? So one, if you're somebody in that's running one of these programs or running an academy, like, and you're using that traditional, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about what this means, but like block training structure, mm-hmm. and you're using a structure that is, that there is no scientific support for what you're doing. And there's a mountain of science saying that it doesn't work at all. Okay. <laughs> um, as, as far as how these structures go. So how much longer is that going to not be a completely unacceptable liability, mm-hmm. right? When something goes wrong in the field and it's like, well, he was trained using structures that, and using methods that are proven not to work mm-hmm. right like is that could that really be considered training right like how much longer our agency is going to be able to get away with that and i probably think it's not that much longer um so that's that's kind of uh one part of it is like you know what are the structures that we're using do they produce any retention or not because for the most part that they they traditionally have it right yeah. retention is retention is very low um and, and and part of that is because we are we're structured around like most of the training that we do is structured around sort of like standard vocational training structure, right? Which is very, uh, very much focused. They're very instructor centric designs and it's very much based on efficiency and delivery, not efficiency and reception and retention on mm. the part of the student. All right. So what's the most efficient way I can put this information out to people, but it's really on them to learn it versus what's the most efficient way that I can make people learn the material. I think there, yeah, and I, that makes me think that 
maybe when the instructors or, or whoever's coming up with the curriculum, like the curriculum de- designers, maybe they always come at, come at it from a perspective of like, I just have to get this to the masses. Correct. So, you know, lowest common denominator. Who, you know, how can I just pump this out there and, and get it done rather than being so focused on the individuals that are learning? Correct. And, and so, you know, using like what you talk, the, the phrase you use, cognitive architecture, mm-hmm. right? Like once I was able to get into the neurology of it, which happened, you know, really not on purpose. I was, um, uh, I, I had some training, like when, when I started contracting, when I'd be back from deployment, I would always grab somebody cause I, I became very interested in this, right? Like, how does this work? How can we improve the training? We improve training processes. So I would always grab somebody when I was back from deployment and be like, Hey, you want to learn to shoot? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, and I was working on tweaking tweaking the methodology, right? And the delivery structures to try to find something that was optimized for sort of like an advanced, not advanced, but like, you know, a, a zero to functional training program, right? Yeah. Like what's kind of the, the easiest way that I can make that happen or the most efficient way I can make that happen. And all this was just experiential anecdotal stuff, right? That I was doing at the time. Um, in 2012, a friend of mine moved out to a rural area and wanted a, you know, like a defensive shotgun class. Um, which I went and, and ran for, and, and she happened to be a research neuroscientist for the Air Force. Mm. Um, and so when I, I explained to her what we were doing and what the training structure looked like, and she's like, you know, what you're doing, it is actually in her research field. And she's like, it's actually pretty cutting edge as far as the, the applied neuroscience that you're using. So she gave me a few topics to look up, um, and I set out to spend a couple of weeks and write a 15-page paper in like four years and 200-something pages of research later. I had the the body of work that eventually became the first book, uh, which is building shooters. Um, and so the, what I learned, right. As I got into looking at the neurology and looking up these topics, right. Is that the, the brain, like everybody's brain pretty much works the same way if it's a healthy brain. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and you know, there's a lot of, uh, um, there's a lot of people that kind of dive off into like, you know, learning the uh, different learning styles and like different types of learners and stuff. And there's, you know, fundamentally, that's really not true, right? There, there's some areas of truth in it, right? So if people have, so if somebody can't read, you probably can't give them stuff and ask them to read it, get much yeah. out of it right? So like, yes, yes, that that person, right, or somebody is very uncomfortable, uh, you know, physically because they've spent their entire life sitting behind a desk or you know doing academic work and they don't have any, they don't have a lot of existing motor skills. Um, they're not going to be very comfortable going hands-on with stuff because it's something they're not familiar with, but that doesn't mean that they fundamentally learn different than other people because the, the processes for how the brain receives and retains information are the same for everybody, right? Because we all have the same basic mechanical structures. Yeah. So you're looking like right at the core of the issue, right at the root of it, essentially like, correct. how does the brain work? And then we'll work outward from there. Correct. Like, like, because that, it, 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 and that that's what the first that first book building shooters i describe it as a terrain map of the brain mm. right and, and described it and it's really for you don't have like that book is applicable for any topic right it doesn't okay. have to be about shooting that's just my background and experience so it's kind of a you know um uh the medium that i tell the tell the story through or whatever but it's it's a terrain map of the brain what does the structure of the brain look like how does it receive information how does it store information and how do we recall and be able to apply information? Cause that's, that's ultimately what we're trying to do, right? If we want, um, if we want things to happen in an operational environment, we need to create the, like everything that we do comes from existing brain circuitry. Yeah. 
right? So if we want things to happen, and we pretty much know what we want to happen operationally, right, at this point, uh, for most operating environments. So if we want those things to happen, we have to create the operational circuitry that will produce those outcomes and will produce those behaviors. This is one thing. So when I think of like defensive tactics, so like the hand-to-hand stuff, right? You're right. talking about like uh, joint locks, even striking. Um, when they teach it in like police class, uh, when you're going through recruit training, and which is the last place you ever get it, you never get it again unless you yep. go outside and take jujitsu or Muay Thai or something. Right. But even in class, when they're showing us these things, I'm like, for one, it's like the most controlled environment and your subject is not high on meth or whatever that you're fighting somebody on. Right. But also, unless you practice it day in and day out constantly, it's like, that's not going to be your go-to. You're literally going to go back to being dog brain and it just smash or grab. That's like your two functions. Yeah. And we see it all the time. And I just find it funny. I'm, every time, and I went through, I've gone to two different police services, both uh, recruit training, did the same thing. And I fought the same thing both times where I'm just like, this is literally like this whole component of training is a waste of time. Yes. So how do we make it so, you know, either people can retain it better um, and recall it when they're in the middle of the shit, <laughs> when you're in the middle of a giant brawl. Right. Um, so yeah, some of the shooting stuff I was reading about, you know, it, it's right along the same line. So, I mean, we could apply it even just the hand-to-hand stuff. Yeah, because it's just all we're talking about are, you know, motor skills that have to be applied tactically. And and so there's part of, part of I think, the issue with the training structures is that it, what we do... You know, I've never been in law enforcement, obviously, but like what we do in any armed professional environment, for the most part, like the the training is built around the same models. And I didn't realize this until I went and I got a job in another field, right? Like that, um, the training structures are the same that we use for pretty much any vocational thing. Yeah, right. Like whether it be you know medicine or like I, I have a. a you know, job that I do in the oil field, right? Oil field, like, you know, any vocational thing, we have training structures and those vocational training structures are based around the efficiency in making the information available. And then the assumption of that competence is going to be developed during on the job experience, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's sort of that assumption of like, we're going to show this to you. This is like the baseline. And then you're going to get good at, you know, if you're a nurse, you're going to get good at drawing blood because you're going to do it 25 times a day. Right. You're literally going to do this. You're going to get this experience on the job. But when it comes to um, some of these, A, some of these very nuanced skills that we need to learn. And then when you get into the firearm stuff in particular, you can't learn gunfighting on the job (laughs) because you maybe, maybe are going to do it once in your career. Yes. And most people won't do it at all. Right. So if you have, like, like, let's say you are someone that gets in a lot of gunfights and you get in four. Right? That would be a tremendous amount of gunfights to be in a law enforcement officer. You get in four gunfights over a 30-year career with an average length of time of five seconds, which would actually be a pretty long gunfight, yep. right? You have 20 seconds of practical application in 30 years. Mm-hmm. How much learning, how much, how much motor skill development happens there? Zero right? Absolutely zero in terms of like producing the skill. So we can't, we, we cannot use those training structures that are based on, I'm going to throw this information to you, go learn it on the, go get good at it on the job. 
because these things don't happen on the job with the type of frequency that yeah. enables those training structures to work, right? It's not like, it, it, you know, whatever, right? Like, okay, I'm going to show you how to make a, you know, whatever, make a pump schedule for how to pump stuff, you know, like an oil for how to pump stuff out of the hole. So you're going to do this once in train, you kind of muddle your way through it, and then you go do it like every other day for the next 20 years, yeah. and then you can do it in your right like that's not what we're talking about here we're talking about skills that almost never get used on the job and every time they get used it's when you're you know either sympathetic or on your way to being there right depending for the firearm stuff you're almost always going to be sympathetic and that changes the game as well because most of the brain that are our common educational training models are designed to like i would actually argue they're kind of designed to just like put all the onus on the student to go mm. figure it out on their own. But, but let's assume the student does that. It's still based on putting information into the conscious access memory system where you have time to stop and think about it and you go grab that information on purpose. But that's not possible as the stress levels go up. And, and so, so our, our, our training structures, there are at least our traditional training structures are just completely mismatched with both how people learn and what the operational need is, right? Mm-hmm. And that's that's a large part of why. I mean, like like you said, right? People show up to end service and they're looking at this thing that they carry on their belt every day like it's a foreign object. Yeah, you know, like what I, I'm I'm a little unclear how to load it, unload it. Like you're, you know, they're trying to point it everywhere at everyone. What is it? Like <laughs> I don't know how to get the magazine out, swing it. Yeah, like like absolutely no clue. Like sure, they get through the, you know, um, we could do an entire three-hour block on qualification uh, or three-hour discussion on qualification, right? But they get through the minimum mandatory testing uh, because that's almost completely irrelevant to the job, mm-hmm. right? And it's all can be done cognitively, right? If you understand how the sites are supposed to be aligned and you can manipulate the trigger with some, like, honestly, a lot of calls, you don't even need to be able to barely do that, right? Like, yeah. It's just, do you have the gross motor skills to pick up a coffee cup and do your eyes work? You can pass the qual if you understand that pressing the trigger makes the boomstick go, right? Well, and I think a lot of people don't realize how much the military actually develops things we use in civilian life. Right. Uh, whether it's in medicine, but also uh, a lot of the law enforcement stuff, it's you know developed somewhere in the military and things just kind of trickle down. It's like, well, who, who has the budget is number one. Who has the budget to develop half right. this stuff? Generally the military. And then it just gets kind of bastardized as it gets passed down and they put in, you know, law enforcement, uh, applicable, uh, you know, whatever you call it, pr- uh, process and procedures or policy right. uh, kind of laid on top of that. So, um, but maybe let's get into talking a little bit about the brain and how that actually works. Yeah. Um, so when we talk about the, I don't know, where would be the best place to start? Because I was thinking the cognitive architecture yeah. when I was reading about this yep. uh, was pretty interesting, but just how does the brain work? Yeah, so let's talk about um, let's talk about the input and then we'll talk about the output. Okay. Right, uh, and just keep this, keep this really, really high level. So um, if you want to, re- like when, when, when you're, you're trying to get information into the brain, right, or get information into where, where somebody's going to learn it, the first thing that happens is you have to get information in, like we receive information through our senses, right? Like touch, 
uh, you know, touch, hearing, feel, taste, right? Hopefully you're not in the range tasting stuff, you know, but, but maybe, um, you know, but that we're all the information that we receive, we receive through one of our senses. Right. And so something else that, that a lot of times is forgotten in, in traditional training structures is that what we say to the students or what we, we put out to the students is not necessarily what the students are receiving, right? Those are mm-hmm. two different things. Um, so, uh, you know, anybody that's had a, that's dated somebody or is married knows that, right? There's what you say, there's what they hear, <laughs> not the same, yeah. not the same, <laughs> often not the same, uh, and, and vice versa. Right. Um, and, and part of the reason for that is that our brains, um, all have a filter on them that block out about 90% of the information that we receive. Right. And so if you're sitting there listening to this, right, you can probably feel your, your toes hitting your socks right now. Right. But you couldn't until I told you that. Mm-hmm. Right. Or at least you weren't paying attention to it until I told you that. Cause that, that input was not relevant to what was going on with you. And so your brain is blocking out that sensory input that you're getting. And we do that because if we had the process, every single thing that we got would be totally overwhelmed and we couldn't function. Right. And so our brains block out most of the information that we get. And a lot of that is based on what our personal set of experiences are, what our priorities are and what we're looking at. Right. So the example we used to use with this and the kind of like this tactical situational awareness world is like you take, you know, two different people and have them walk into a room and evaluate a person, right? Like you and I might look at somebody and be like, all right, not a threat. I'm going to ignore you. Right. Like, yeah. And somebody else might be like, wow, those shoes and those belts, they just do not match at all. <laughs> right. And that's what they're fo- like. We're looking at the same person, but we're keying on totally different things. You and I are like, I mean, I suppose the person's wearing shoes, but like, I don't know what yeah. color they were. I wasn't looking at that. I was evaluating this person on the threat board. What does it look like their physical capabilities are? Are they aware? Like, okay, now I'll pay attention to something else because that's relevant or not. Or somebody else is like, that fact that 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 fashion is just unacceptable. Well, and I'll <laughs> jump in real quick too, just to kind of make that applicable yeah. for the law enforcement side. So a lot of times you'll go to court for something like a use of force. And say you have like, you know, two, three officers involved in use of force on one right. subject. And they'll ask you in there, they'll be like, well, you know, this person wasn't punching them. You know, this officer wasn't punching, but you were. It's like, yeah, but I, I'm, you know, this size and I saw things from this angle and I didn't know this other thing right. was going on. But also, you know, maybe I'm more perceptive or less perceptive than the other officers there. So it, it's all that stuff coming at you constantly. So that's something that right. like officers have to try and articulate when they're in court. But yeah, it's a really good way you put it there. Um, so, so we've got this filter that blocks out most of what we get. And that's our for like, if you're teaching somebody understanding that there's this filter there, that's blocking out most of what you're trying to put out, um, is a very, very important thing. Cause that's your first challenge. How do I navigate through this filter? And right? so if you're an instructor and, 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 and you're dealing with a class, right? Say you've got a class of 30 people, there's what you say there's, and there's what you think you said. And those are two different things, right? Then there's what each person hears which is different. And it's different for each individual person in this group of 30 that you're trying to teach. And then there's what they understand out of what they heard. And then there's what they remember. And each of those are different, right? So you've got a lot of different versions of what happened over the past hour long block of instruction, right? And nobody, like, you don't know where any of these individual students are. You know what you think you said, but it's different than what you actually said, which is different than Mm -hmm. any of these three different versions of what happened for each of these 30 people. Right. And so 
how am I going to get consistent results when I've got, you know, a hundred different versions of what happened over the past hour, right? So that's, that's the first challenge that we have to navigate um, as instructors is understanding that just because I stood up in front of a class and said something doesn't mean that that person's getting it. Like, you know, and this, it's, it's sort of humorous because you, you'll see people in, in training, right? You'll see like, particularly when adjuncts are used, right? Like in a range environment, which a lot of agencies do, right? And so some dudes not even from there, not from that agency is showing up, drives an hour because they need an extra adjunct and he's on the mm-hmm. range and somebody's struggling, right? And they'll walk up and they're trying to be like, you know, they're trying to be like a good mentor and they'll tap somebody on the shoulder and they'll talk to them very earnestly for like 15 minutes, right? They'll pull them aside and they'll talk to them and you need to do this. And, you know, particularly when it's recruits, the recruits are like, yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, sir. I got it. You understand? <laughs> yes, sir. Oh, I understand what you're saying. And then that person goes out like five minutes later, right? You give them another mag and they're doing the exact same thing wrong. And then the, this instructor who's been trying to be like this very calm, cool, collective metric just completely loses it. Like they're not listening to me. Yeah. Right. And then it turns into just like a haze fest. And now legitimately sometimes, you know, people aren't paying attention, right. Or they just don't want to pay attention because they don't care. And that's a totally separate, that that's its own problem. Right. But you also have this environment where like you're talking to someone and they're, they're really not, they don't even have the context to understand what you're trying to tell them. Right. Or like most of what you're telling them is not getting through to the brain. Even if they understand it, they don't have the physical skills to apply it. So, um, anyway, so that is our first challenge as, as instructors is getting stuff through this filter. Um, once we get information through the filter, let's assume we've navigated and we've got the information we want through the filter. It goes into short-term memory uh, or, you know, a, a, a brain space called short-term memory. And this is um, very similar to a computer's random access memory. Okay. You can put information in it. You can work with information that's in it, but it's very small, right? It doesn't hold that much information and it doesn't permanently re- store anything. That's, that's not entirely true, but basically nothing gets stored permanently in short-term memory in this space. And it is geographically separate, right? It's in a different part of the brain from the long-term memory systems. Mm. So, that's the other thing, like particularly because a lot of our training models, particularly when we look at in-service, are based on end of training period performance evaluation. So I'm going to bring you in here for eight hours. I'm going to give you this information. We're going to work with it. You're going to test out at the end on some generally some completely meaningless test, but whatever, right? We're going to give you this test. You take a test on it at the end and go, wait, well, all of this is done in the short-term memory space and none of that information, the, the, the brain has no it's not even in a place where it can be stored, yeah. right? So it typically will just get immediately flushed out, right? Um, Would that be like, so if you want to uh, train somebody on something and then bring them back, say, a week later to see if they actually stored it? Because if you're just doing it right after, it's like, well, yeah, I just yeah, kind of yeah, mimicking. Yeah, if you're just doing it right after, they're correct. Like, they're probably not going to retain. And so an example for this, right, is like, you're you're in Canada, right? So I can, I can yeah. tell this is kind of a joke, but not really. Um, right. So like everybody, you know, at least in the, you, I don't know, what, is there something you guys would typically memorize? Like for us, it would be like the Gettysburg Address that you'd have to memorize in school at some point. So there's something up there, like some Maybe the National or, Anthem. <laughs> national, well, the National Anthem people typically learn. But like if there's something, some speech or some like thing you had to memorize yeah. for a presentation in school and you cram for it for like a week, most people can probably not say that now, but everybody can sing a Nickelback song despite their best <laughs> efforts not to be able to. Yeah. All right. 
um, you know, or what, or Taylor Swift, or pick your pick your poison there, right? Because one thing, you sit down and you concentrate on it, right? And you as you're working with it, you have this end of training period performance, and then you go away from it, and probably just cram for it for 24 to 48 hours and walked away, and then your brain doesn't retain it. The other thing, you don't even want to hear it, but you hear it three times a day for months and months and months and months, and next thing you know, you know all the words, even mm-hmm. though you're not even trying to learn it. Yeah, right. Yeah. And it's and, and that is 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 because of how your brain's exposed to the information and one of those ways matches up with how information's reinforced and transferred in the long term okay. memory and the other one does not right so that's that's kind of an example um you know of of, of the, the two differences right so let's assume that we get information into the short term memory system we can work with it there but it doesn't get stored so if we want it to get stored Right, we have to make the brain recognize that the information is important and that the information needs to get stored. We have to make sure the information doesn't get corrupted, right? Because it's in short-term memory, it's very easy to corrupt it there, right? Like and and to screw it up, and and we do this all the time with, for example, draw stroke, right? Or you know, weapons grip, right? Which is why people's grips are typically terrible because we, not that we don't teach them grip appropriately, but we don't give them the process to learn the grip. Yeah. Okay. Right. Before we ask them to do other things. And so they're gripping the gun differently every time they touch it. And next thing you know, you've got somebody that, that, you know, doesn't have more of a grip than the way they would grip a coffee cup or, you know, a hammer. Mm. Um, so once we get information, so if we get information in short term memory, we have to make sure it doesn't get corrupted. We have to make sure that the brain recognizes that it's important and it needs to get stored. And then, the brain will go through processes of taking that information and moving it into long-term memory for permanent storage. And it's, it's important for people to understand that those are active processes that the brain has. And in order for those processes to happen, we need to let that information sit where we're not using it, right? Where the student's not even engaging with it and the student has to sleep. Okay. Right. Like there's kind of this whole like, oh, we need to be hard. Let's not sleep at all. Well, okay, but you're not learning anything either because the brain's processes for learning actually require you to sleep. There's parts of the learning process that can't happen until you get in the REM state. Um, and ideally that happens within 12 hours of when the information is is taught, right? Or when the information is 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 you know put in the short-term memory. So there's a lot of little things like this, right? Which if you understand this cognitive architecture that, you know, and you understand what, what the tools are to be able to navigate through the different pieces of it, it completely changes the the process of training design, Yeah, right? Training design is no longer about just like, well, here's all the information I need. I've organized it into PowerPoint presentations and I have time to click through the PowerPoint presentations in an eight hour day. Therefore we have training, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's no longer about that. It's about like, what is the operational outcome that I need and what are the neurological, physiological, and physical and knowledge-based requirements to make these things happen in the field, right? And then what is the brain circuitry responsible for this? And then how do I create the circuitry? And get them to recall it and give the output. Well, well, right. And it's about producing the brain circuitry for performance and putting it into the right part of the brain, right? So back to the architecture piece, there's short-term memory and then there's long-term memory, but there are two distinctly separate long-term memory systems, at least in, in, the, in, the, current, in the current models of, of memory that we have. Um, and I'm talking memory specifically for, for motor skills. Now, there's a bunch of different you know, breakdowns of, of memory systems, but specific to like you know, producing and, and, and performing motor skills, um, 
there is what's called long-term declarative memory and then long-term procedural memory, right? Declarative memory and the terminology is not that important other than that, you know, kind of got to use it to talk, right? So the declarative memory is where we would go consciously access something. So say, for example, you're, you're doing a qualification and I'm on the loudspeaker at the range and I'm like, you know, on the command of uh, draw, you will draw your weapon. You will fire three rounds. You will conduct a, you know, reload from slide lock fire three more rounds, conduct a scan, and return to the holster or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, where are you probably performing those skills from since you know exactly what you're going to do? You're probably thinking about it, right? I need to draw the guns. Let me think about like where I start, where my hands move, how I disengage retention, right? And so all of that is getting performed, assuming that you even have those skills in the memory system. This long-term, you're performing those from the declarative memory system, which is your conscious access. I know what I'm going to do, and I'm going to go grab it system. There's another long-term memory system, which is redundant, and then it can store the same information, but it's completely different in terms of its, its, its use case for the brain, right? And it is yet again in a physically different part of the brain than a declarative memory, and that is the procedural memory system. So procedural memory is the stuff that we access unconsciously, right? So if you've ever, you know, driven by where you would normally go to work on a weekend, right? Because you're going somewhere else. The next thing you know, you're pulling into the driveway at work because you were on the phone or you're involved in a conversation. That's the procedural memory system at work, right? You didn't even know you were driving to work and you're all of a sudden you're in the work parking lot and you're like, <laughs> did I just blow all the red lights on my way this in? Is, this is, yeah, <laughs> this is not the movie theater. I'm not at the movie theater that I'm supposed to be at, right? Um, that that's the procedural memory system at work because you're basically flying like you're performing all of these skills unconsciously. You're not even paying attention to it; they're just happening. So it's kind of your cruise control, correct? And so as the stress levels go up, right? When we talk about stress, right? Stress is really you know chemicals and hormones getting pumped into the brain tissue, right? Like mm. at a mechanical level, that's that's what stress is. Um, and so as these chemical levels in the brain change it basically acts acts kind of like a switch and it limits or in some cases basically eliminates your ability to access what's in the per, that declarative memory system and so the only stuff you can get to is what's in procedural that unconscious access system mm-hmm. and so that's why we will see uh people do things sometimes in you know really high stress situations that make absolutely no sense right like you would they're not things you would do if you were thinking about it and a person may even be able to do the correct skill or the correct process in an environment where they aren't sympathetic but when they go sympathetic they do something totally off the wall and that's because their brain or they do nothing right they freeze yeah. and do nothing and that's because their brain either has nothing that it associates as relevant to that problem yeah right like and again this is not a cognitively reasoned thing because your access to the prefrontal cortex and your ability to think is basically eliminated at this point right because of the levels of stress you're just pulling from procedural memory what does the brain find to be relevant to this to this event that's what it's going to pull and that's the file right or that's that's the program that it's going to run that's the circuit board it's going to activate and if there's nothing there you may do nothing yeah right you're just sitting there flashing through like what can i find that's relevant if there's something there the brain finds to be relevant you may do it even if it's something that's that's actually not a good idea in that operational setting well it almost sounds like the yeah the brain has kind of a capacity for like what it can handle all at once so it, it you know if it has to shut off and just go back to i guess like the only term i can think of is dog brain but you're you're just going back to like some real core functions and maybe you 
you know, if you've trained in martial arts or or something for like a long time, maybe you can then uh, take in more stuff at once. You know, you're kind of getting bombarded with things if it's punches or or the situation or whatever it is, and you can process that. Yeah. So, um, with respect, right? With respect to the stress stuff. So, I mean, like I said, stress is at, at a mechanical level is basically what are the levels of 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 the stress chemicals, right? I'm going to make this way overly simplified, and I'm not a neuroscientist, right? Like disclosure. Um, <laughs> Uh, but so let's just say like cortisol and norepinephrine, right. Are two chemicals that, that are, are dumped in the brain, you know, in, in stressful settings. So, you know, and th- there's obviously a lot more going on there. Right. But like, as the, like, as we pump these chemicals into the brain tissue, right. Or the brain releases these chemicals into the tissue, everything that happens in the brain is a, you know, a chemical reaction basically, right? Because you got all these complex chemical reactions happening in the brain that make up brain function. So as you change the levels of chemicals, right? Most of us took some level of chemistry at some point. As you change the levels of chemicals in the mixture, right? It changes how these things happen, yeah. right? It changes how these things work. And so it's important to understand with respect to stress that it is not the stimulus that causes the stress, right? Or that causes the impacts of the stress. It is the levels of chemicals in the brain tissue that cause the stress impacts. Okay. Does that make sense? Yep. Right. So is there an example of this? Um, I, I always ask this in classes, right? I'm like, is anybody here deathly afraid of clowns? Right. And then I'm like, don't answer because somebody's already Googling, like, you know, where do I, where do I hire? How can I hire some, you know, how clown, some clowns <laughs> to show up at the training tomorrow? Um, but, but there are people that have these, you know, uh, you call them irrational phobias, right? There are people that have a traumatic association with the stimulus, which is really what that is, yeah. right? And that stimulus creates the stress response for whatever reason, right? Because they have this traumatically formed connection with the stimulus. And, um, but so it is not the clown, right? Like you can sit in a room and a clown walks in and most of us are not going to melt down. Yeah. Right. But there are some people that will. Right. And again, that's that's a simple example, but it's it's not the stimulus and it doesn't matter what the stimulus is. It's not the stimulus that is causing the stress response. It's your reaction to the stimulus that is causing the stress response. Right. So that's 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 one part of that. Right. And as we look at training people for stressful environments, right, we can there are things we can do in the training process that will change or they change the reaction, but like, you know, again, understanding that it's not the stimulus, right? If I yeah. can have this stimulus not generate the same level of stress response for you that it may for an untrained person, your level of stress will be lower. So it's essentially than somebody else. Yeah, getting people to react uh, more appropriately given the set of circumstances. Well, well, well this is a there, there's a whole there's a whole bunch of interdisciplinary things that collide here, right? So that's one of them. The second one is is that. I'm sure uh, you're familiar with Ken Murray, right? Uh, training at Speed Life, mm. uh, one of the co-founders of Semunition. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, so Ken is uh, uh, he's Canadian, actually. Um, I have to look him up. Uh, very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Ken Murray, he would be a good guy to have on your podcast if you haven't ever. Obviously, you haven't talked to him. Um, uh, so Ken is probably because he was there at, kind of at the beginning of the uh, reality-based force-on-force training stuff. Um, so he's probably watched as much, if not more force on force training and run as much, if not more of it than anybody else. Right. And his 
observation is, is that people have one of two responses to being presented with a problem. It's either anxiety or exhilaration, right? One of two fundamental responses. And it's either I can solve this problem and I have the opportunity to go crush it, right? Or I don't know how to solve this problem and I start the stress levels start going up, right? So this is, this is again, oversimplified. Like I said, there is stress chemicals that get dumped in the brain. And then there's also, I have the opportunity to crush this. There's exhilaration and we're just, so we're just going to oversimplify this as stress chemicals being cortisol. And I have the opportunity to crush it. Exhilaration being dopamine. Okay. Right. Way oversimplified. This is not scientifically accurate, but it's a model we can use to try to understand it. Right. So I walk into an environment that could be stressful, right? There are stimuli in there that would generate stress in most people. Right. So see that there's a problem, right? Like there is a traffic accident or there's something going on and somebody there has a firearm that could be stressful. So that's going to start raising the cortisol levels, right? My brain is looking for the solution to that, right? I see like, Hey, there's a dude here that looks like he's going to shoot these other dudes, right? It's no question. It's a good shoot. This is a really bad guy who's going to do really bad things. And then I can stop this because I have a weapon and I'm really good with the weapon and I know I'm going to absolutely crush this problem set. Dopamine, 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 mm-hmm. right? And so you can think of this as sort of a titration between dopamine and cortisol. Well, let's look at the other the other possibility there, which is, oh, it looks like these persons are going to kill people. I have to use my gun. I hate guns. Guns are terrible. Mm-hmm. I'm not good with guns. I can barely qualify. My hand hits the gun. My stress level continues to go up. And so in those two settings, right? One person has the solution, their stress level is going down and they're exhilarated because they they have the opportunity to solve this tactical problem. And they're very highly skilled and they get to use these skills to solve this problem. The other person's like, I suck. Yeah. Right. I hate (laughs) the gun. I only touch it in service and I always get yelled at because I'm terrible. Right. And their stress levels going up. And so you're looking at two totally different experiences that people are having with the same stimulus and the same problem based on their confidence in their capability to solve that problem mm-hmm. right yep. and that's based confidence comes from real skills and real knowledge that you can apply those skills to solve that problem okay right there's a um there's a hilarious uh, i don't know if you're familiar with like black rifle coffee yep. and matt best like before they all yeah so there's a hilarious video you can i don't know if, i don't know how much of the stuff to take it off youtube uh at this point but um it's the uh, a moment like this which is a home invasion like video i mean it's, i'll look it, it know, up those, if i can find it hilarious right yeah yeah it's it's hilarious and it's a very good um foul mouth but hilarious right <laughs> everything those guys did was foul mouth so it, it it's a very good like hyperbolistics example of this so there's a there's a home invasion going on right you got the you know the their crew of guys sitting around doing something ridiculous right and um you know, somebody's girlfriend or wife or something runs in there and it's like are you guys stuff somebody's breaking into the house right and she's freaking out Right. And it's this group of, you know, pipe hitters and like, they're all like jumping up and down, super <laughs> excited, you know, like a home invasion. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and they're just, just like amazingly excited that they're going to get to like, get the guns out. And they're like pulling stuff out of the safe. And it's, 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 I mean, it's those guys. So it's, it's hilarious, but that's a very good kind of like hyperbolistic example of we've got this stimulus with somebody breaking into this house. One person's freaking out and these other people are like, ah, oh, my prayers are answered. Right. <laughs> I have the opportunity to go, you know, use all this stuff that I've stocked up or whatever. Um, and so that is another part of that that operational stress component of like, 
are you actually prepared to solve the problem, right? Do you have the neural circuitry in place that allows you to solve this problem? If you do, right, the brain, right, kind of as those stress levels are, are moderating around, will go, hey, I've got the circuit board to perform this, right? Yeah. And when you know you can perform it, you're getting, and again, this is not scientifically accurate, but you're now getting dopamine rather than cortisol, right? And so you're kind of titrating into, and you now have more cognitive access to stuff, right? Not only do you have better skills, but you're better able to think because you have all of these processes in place and you're not getting this massive dump of the stress chemical because you can solve this problem and you're exhilarated by that. The other component to this is in the actual training, like how we get to that point, right? We are, again, looking at it from a, a building the neural circuitry necessary for the operational environment, right? Like that's a completely separate thing than I'm just testing you on some skill in a way that's completely unrelated to the operational setting, right? So say, for example, because we're talking about the gun stuff, I give you a gun and I'm like, all right, I need you to, uh, you know, shoot this, this qualification at this massive, like, you know, target that's like twice the size of a human torso, mm-hmm. right? And because people aren't calling it 25 yards, even though this thing's twice the size of a human torso, now we're only going to shoot the 15 because, you know, we don't want to spend the rounds to get people to call it 25 or whatever. Um, and nobody actually shoots people at 25 anyway. So it's a, it's a waste of time. So now you, you take this test, right? Which as long as there's not something physiologically wrong with you, you can't really fail the test, right? And the instructor's like, all right, I want you to relax. You just like ignore everything. Just calm down, like align the front sight with the rear sight. Look at the front sight. Everything else should be blurry. Ignore your environment and just press the trigger. We have super long time frames because we can't put enough people on the street if we had compressed time frames. So super long time frames. You passed the test, right? Like, congratulations, you're qualified. You know, you made it. Like, uh, go out, go out, go forth and, you know, go do your job. Well, now you're in an environment where you might need this weapon system. Um, that those aren't relevant skills that you learned. Yeah. Right. You didn't learn shooting skills that are relevant to, to a gunfight, right? You learned how to punch holes in paper and you don't even have the ability to look at what you're shooting at and be able to see what it's doing. Yeah. Right. That's the, that's not even that neural, the neural circuitry responsible for those processes, and the visual motor skills that are necessary to both do that and aim the firearm at the same time. You don't even have those. Right. And so you don't even have the components of the brain connected to the physical skills that are necessary to perform the skill in the operational setting. If we, during the training process, if we actually break this down and go, what, what do I need to do if I have to shoot somebody? Right. Or if I think I might have to shoot somebody and, you know, well, I might need to move to cover. I might need to see the person. I might need to continually judge what this person's doing. Right. I need to perform the, this set of physical. So I think yeah. like some of this was like, um, well, what do we call it? Prism. I think it's prism shooting where you kind of like have a video running and you know, the instructor's behind you on a computer, but based on what you say, uh, in response to the video, uh, they can like select different options. Like it's almost like a choose your own adventure. They also have a little gun that can like shoot at you too. <laughs> so. Prism, yeah. Prism was a prism was a, a thing that had the little pet pellet ball yeah. to shoot back. So it, yeah. is it kind of along those lines? Like we're trying to get people out of just the static and just shoot. Now we're trying to generate more. Well, what we want to do is we want the we want. Well, I'll, I'll come back and talk about like we actually tried to get prism in the navy or our command did, and I recommended against it. Mm. <laughs> 
<laughs> funny, uh, funny story. But um, the uh, um, what I'm talking about is, have we built the actual neurological circuitry, and have we robustly created that? Right. So when we build the mechanical components of building neural circuitry, right, like we will have things that aren't connected, and we make them try to talk to each other, and they don't do a very good job because they're not connected. And then as we use these skills over time, right, which is not typically going to happen in most, uh, again, like most training programs, but as you use these skills with repetition over time, the brain's like, hey, I need to do this, right, and so it'll reach out and then you're actually physically growing structures, right? Dendrites and axons, you create synaptic connections and then all that stuff gets insulated. Then the synapses, their communication gets specialized, right? Where you basically tune, tune the radio there to only allow the signals that are relevant, yeah. right? Which reduces the noise. So the circuitry gets efficient. It gets well insulated. The signal transmission gets faster and you now are, are building an efficient network for communication for performing these functions. If you do things a lot, like, when I have a gun, I always need to think a lot and process and see more, right? Like your gun skills will start to incorporate more of the brain, right? There's a, um, mm. uh, we're kind of getting down in the weeds now in some of the neurology, right? But there's, there's a process called use dependent cortical reorganization, which is a whole bunch of big words to say, like, as we, when we do things a lot, right? Or, or we put a lot of demands on ourselves, our brain will go, Hey, this is really important. I need more resources for this. And it will rededicate parts of the brain that aren't maybe being used as much to perform that task, right? So for example, there was a seminal study dying cab drivers, I think in London, right? Where they said like more of the brain in these people is dedicated to geographic and geographical processing and memory than in most people's brains. Why? Because they have to learn all the streets in London, Yeah. right? Like, and, and so because they do more of this, their brain has gone and grabbed more resources because they do it so much and said, I'm going to dedicate more resources to this, right? So our capacity to perform any individual thing at a neurological level is not fixed, right? The brain, even as an adult is plastic, it has the ability to go, this is important. I need more resources. Let me dedicate more resources to this task, but that's not something that happens overnight, right? And so if the training process has built a robust circuit I call it a circuit board, right? Because mm -hmm. it's kind of easy for people to understand. If we built a robust circuit board for performing this task, it has all of the components on it, right? Like, it's not like we built the circuit board with no camera, right? Or we built a car and we didn't put bra a brake pedal on it. Yeah. So I can't stop, right? All I have is an accelerator. No, like we have built a robust functional circuit board that is optimized for this set of tasks, right? Like, a, that circuit board is much able, much more able to take a lot of, you know, uh, stressful events because it's a real, it's a robustly formed set of circuitry. Yeah. Right. Our actual experience of the stress response is going to be lower because we're going to get exhilaration from the opportunity to solve the problem versus anxiety because we know we can't solve the problem, but we're here anyway. So it's like, we're here till this is over. But this sucks, and I have no idea what I'm going you know, to do. I, I right? think that comes down to even uh, just basics in life. Like you see a lot of people now, uh, it's like, okay, instead of teaching people how to solve a problem, let's just you know try and uh, use policy or legislation and just like right. make it so it doesn't even exist or they don't have to deal with it. It's like, why don't we just make people more resilient and teach them how to actually deal with the problem rather than just saying like, oh, this will never happen or it's low chance, so why are we even right. bothering? Um, 
I've got you for about another 10 minutes, but I want to make sure we talk about neuro. Okay. Yeah. And it, because I think this is going to kind of tie into what we're on right now. Yeah. It, it, well, the, well, yeah. And so, and the, so that, that actually kind of ties directly into where we're at here. Right. And so if we look at, uh, but, but so backing up a little bit, mm-hmm. does that make sense? Right. So in terms of like dealing yeah. with stress, like we want to create circuitry, it's going to produce the outcome. Right. And so if I do go sympathetic, the circuitry is there in the long-term procedural memory system where the stuff happens automatically. So assuming that I go sympathetic, that stuff happens in the process of building that circuitry. I am also right. If I'm building the circuitry for that task, right. And related to those specific operational stimuli, right. Like people shooting guns and, you know, hitting people and, you know, running people over or whatever. If I'm building things around that, right. Around those stimuli, the stress that that person feels who has developed that circuitry is going to be less because they're not going to necessarily have the same level of anxiety. They're going to have this dump of exhilaration right in that process instead of the anxiety because they can solve the problem. And that set of circuitry is also a lot more robust and a lot more resilient to the impacts of stress because it's built in such a way to facilitate those outcomes, right? So there's kind of a, there's a whole bunch of things that go in there, right? So okay. fast forward over to how do we actually do this, right? Because that's the next question. It's like, all right, great. We talked about all this neurology. Congratulations. I still have to go shoot the qual and I only have the rounds for that. What do you, what do you want me to do, right? Um, so there's two parts to this, right? The first part is the strength training structure piece. How do we restructure the training process, the training delivery process, and then, you know, for like an academy and then the in-service to match up with how the brain learns. Because there are very specific things that produce neural circuitry. So let's do those things, right? We know what we want the circuit board to look like. Let's build it. So that's, that's one part of it. Can we redesign the training structures? And then the other part of it is what does this circuit board need to look like? What are the actual things that I need to do operationally? And that, that was part of what led to the development of, of of what we we call the neurosystem was looking at what is it physiologically that we need to do in gunfights, right? We have to see what the subject is doing. We have to make decisions. The visual input that I need to get involves object recognition and motion detection. I have to process spatial relationships, right? I need to integrate mobility. Like all of these things that we need to do, right? We could talk for for hours and hours and hours on that. In order and then understanding like to build that circuitry, I have to be able to do things with repetition over time and ways that conform oh, okay. with the training process, right? And so, if we look at, um, uh, and, and we I sat down, like I didn't, I never wanted to run a company or build products or anything that wasn't ever anything that was exciting to me. Like, uh, there's a lot of it that I don't like, right? I never wanted to learn accounting. How much does that <laughs> suck? Um, but uh, you know, if we you know, I, I looked at everything else that was was going on in the industry and everything else that the industry was doing and was like, that we can't get there from here. Nobody is doing anything that allows us to solve these problems because everybody is ignoring the learning part. Okay. Yeah. Right. Like, it, right. So, so for example, you look at Prism and one of the reasons that I recommended that we not get Prism when I was in the Navy, I don't even know if they still make that, that system or not, but the reason I recommended we not get it is I did a breakdown, right? And I said, look, um, if I take my detachment into this, everybody's going to effectively get 10 minutes if I run it for three solid days. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what it was with the police. Like, like what's the, <laughs> correct. Like, like, like what's the, tr- what's the actual benefit as far as learning? 
if somebody gets 10 minutes a year in a system? Zero. Yeah. Right. There's, you know, and, and there's, there's actually a lot more that goes into that. Right. And so when, and when those, those systems are intended to jack the stress levels up, which is jacking up the levels of stress chemical in the brain, when you go through that, you eliminate the brain's capacity to even learn motor skills. The only thing that you can do is form traumatic association, right? So I put you into a phobia generator mm, okay. for 10 minutes a year and then be like, this was good, right? Everybody, did anybody, the only thing you could have done that was productive in that environment is got a phobia yeah, effectively, right? And that's a little bit of an overstatement, um, but it, does that make sense? Like, well, why would we do this, right? Yep, um, 100%. And, and I understand the, and, and so from a, from a training design standpoint, um, all of that stuff, right? And, and there are uses for those systems. Like I don't, I, mean, I, I kind of do mean to knock them, but like there are uses for them. There are things you can do with them. Um, but there's also a lot of things that we can. And the thing that everybody did, right? And the way that the entire industry went was all like, how can I push the technology forward where everybody ignored what we're actually trying to accomplish? Yeah. Right? Like, which is how do we produce this neural circuitry and none of the other stuff out there was even going in the right direction. So I was like, well, let's, let's build something that, that will actually let us solve this problem. Um, and so, so that's how you kind of came up with neuro. It's, it's, that's how we came up with neuro, right? And so the objective was how do I, in the minimal, like least expensive, most scalable way possible, how do I solve all of the training problems that we have, right? Like I'm not trying to create something that's super fancy, right? I'm not trying to do something that's technologically awe-inspiring. I'm trying to do something that enables us to solve this whole big bag of training issues that none of the other systems are even looking at, mm-hmm. right like we can't we can't get there from here with basically anything else right and so i've really been going down the the rabbit hole on some of that stuff recently right so like um augmented and virtual reality are kind of like the new hotness right like everybody's you know super excited about that and the vendors you know pushing out like oh well you don't need to even shoot just like come into this augmented virtual reality and it's like so if you get in and you and you and it's like time out guys if you get in and you you get into the 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 like really detailed like neurological research on what that stuff produces, like it should really give us some pause about how we're using it. There, there's value. There's absolute value, right? And that's like using like actual VR goggles, like you're wearing something. VR goggles and AR and stuff like. Okay. Understand that your visual motor skills that you use in that and the processing centers that are used for processing the visual information are different than what's used in the real world. Yeah. Right. So everybody listening to this, understand this, you cannot learn shooting in AR and VR. It cannot be done because you can't use the same brain circuitry. Yeah. When I went through uh, training with the, the Royal Canadian Mount of police and they had these, um, they were like a giant video game. It was like one of those car video games. You sit in the seat and you got the big screen in front of you. Except this right. had three of them kind of wrapped around like 180 degrees. And it was like some sort of driver training thing. Right. And I couldn't, so many people couldn't do it. It actually made a bunch of people sick because like right. something to do with how they were perceiving the, the motion on the screen was making them all throw up. But even then it was like, yeah, you know, I hit the brake, but it, I don't know how hard I'm hitting the brake because I only have the visual, but I don't have like the actual feeling of the car there. And so you lose out on all those other senses and the the stuff coming in, right? Like all the perception that tells you it's not just a visual thing, but it's a feeling and and everything that's happening to you. So 
Um, with the neuro, I wanted to ask too, because uh, one of the things I was reading about was um, some of the training aspects only have an auditory. Um, there was like a bit of a distinction between auditory and then visual stimulus. So is that something that's incorporated? Yeah. So if we think about like, basically what we did with neuro is for people that are, are kind of in the weeds on the shooting stuff, right? We took a shot timer, we strapped three laser pointers on it and then put a control system, a bunch of wireless communications in it. And then we also have a, uh, a wireless uh, wearable sensor array that enables each individual shooter to get their shooting performance feedback on every rep. Right. So again, going back into like, if we look at the learning challenges, right? The way that we learn, the way that we engage the mechanisms in neuroplasticity is by attempting to achieve something. Okay. Right. Like we have to be attempting to achieve something in order to learn. So one of the real problems with traditional range training, I mean, just, just a limitation that we've had is I can't really give you any, any metric to meet other than shooting a really tight group. And most people don't even have the skills to do that. So it doesn't matter. And so what standard are you trying to achieve? And we end up just going through motions on some motor skills that we're not even learning because there's no mech. We, we aren't engaging the learning mechanisms because we've never had the ability to do it because, you know, I, I can't really give you a standard. So mm. backing up a little bit, I, we'll get to the visual piece in a second. Right. But, um, I gave, uh, or over the last year and a half, I had the opportunity to work with New York state to help rewrite the recruit curriculum, uh, at a statewide level, right. For New York. And um, the we completely changed the structure of how it's delivered. We weren't able to really optimize it because of resource limitations and you know kind of like those standard things for uh, limitations on an academy structure. And that's just real world, right? Like everything's not going to be perfect. We have to, to do what we can. Um, but we completely changed the delivery structure, how information's put out. And the first three days of of the academy that are live fire or of the, of the academy program in the live fire block or live fire portion. Um, are all about basically prophylactic for building bad shooting, right? And so you start out with, you know, I'm giving you a stringent standard of accuracy that I expect you to meet. As soon as you fail to meet that, we immediately remediate. We're not going to have mm. you shoot for the next three days, then be like, oh, you're failing the qual. Like, let's try to remediate you. <laughs> as soon as you're failing to achieve the standard, right, which is achievable but challenging, that's the goal, right? It needs to be achievable, but something is challenging you so that you have to strive to achieve it. As soon as you fail, we immediately remediate, like download your weapon back to dry fire. Let's work out the kinks. Let's work out the, me the mechanics and then go back to live fire, right? So it's got a, it's a continuous process of learning and remediation, which is how most of us learn, right? And so if you think about how people that are like anybody that's listening to this is legitimately a good shooter, you didn't learn to shoot well in a group training environment where you're launching rounds and the targets are turning or whatever. You learn to shoot by going to the range by yourself with your shot timer. Right. And you're trying to achieve something. I want to run a build drill in 0.75 or whatever, 2.5 okay. seconds or two seconds, whatever. Right. Okay. Beep, bang, 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 bang. All right. Fire my six rounds. Well, I got three out of the A zone to the left. So how do I fix that? What do I got going on with my grip? And I'm over time. So I wasn't going fast enough. Let me process that. All right. Well, maybe I'm not going to try to do two and a half. Let me just hit three. Let me get my accuracy down first. So what did I do wrong that caused me to miss these rounds? What do I think I did wrong? All right, let me try again. Uh, okay. So I missed again. Like, what did that feel like? And you make those changes based on evaluation of your performance, right? Like that's the me mechanics of how this learns. We've never had the ability to do that in group firearms training mm. because you can't see your data, right? And you're typically running through to the next rep. And so it's a complete change in the structure. But the one thing that, that 
without the neurosystem, right? Or some equivalent of that, what you're not able to do is see your shot splits, right? And so you can't really see where you're at in a timeline because you've got a target in front of you, but it, you don't know where your timing is. You don't know what your response time was and you don't know what your splits were and you don't know how long it took you to deescalate when the stimulus changed because we do all of this based on a visual stimulus rather than audible stimulus, which is traditionally how we've run ranges. Um, uh, which is which is something else that neuro enable, right? You don't have to have neuro to do it, but neuro makes it easier. So one of the things that that came out of the first couple of pilot academies where they didn't have the neuro system where you can see those shot splits and, and shooting performance data is that the students started becoming very good at the accuracy part, but didn't have any recoil management capability. And some of this is on the instructors because like if somebody's shooting like three second splits, you need to be up there rear end being like, hey, what you're doing is not combat relevant, right? But that process is much easier when you can give the students the time portion of the challenge to meet, right? So, okay. hey, I expect you to hit the standard of accuracy. I also expect your first round, like you're coming from the ready position. I expect the first round to, you know, happen within whatever, 1.25 seconds, right? Within when the stimulus shows up, I expect your shot splits to be, you know, between 0.3 and 0.5 seconds. And I expect you to stop shooting within half a second from when this, that stimulus goes away. So now it's not just the accuracy you have to meet. You also have to meet these other standards and you can see whether or not you passed or failed. You can see whether or not you met the standard. And so the ability to see that data and the ability to be able to chase and try to achieve something that's challenging for you that you're not quite there, but you can like push yourself yep. to try to okay. achieve that standard and take a time after every, take the time after every repetition to be like, okay, I did this and I failed to achieve, which is super critical for learning, right? You can, you have to put people in an environment where they can fail to achieve something, but it is an achievable thing that they can, you know, improve to get to, right? So it's like, all right, I didn't do this. I didn't shoot it fast enough. So what does that tell me that I need to do? It tells me I need to do these things faster. So you try something else and it's like, okay. ah, okay, well, I met the time, but I missed everything. Well, why is that? Right. Okay. Well, let's look at that instructor. Why did I miss this? Well, what did you see? Well, I wasn't able to see anything because I was just going super fast. Okay. So your time is where we want, but you weren't able to see anything. So what does that tell us we need to do with vision and why, you know, why are you having trouble saying, well, because the gun's bouncing so much. Okay. Your recoil management sucks. Let's work on your grip. Let's work on your body structure because your grip is not controlling the recoil enough to enable you to hit these shots plus with standard of accuracy. Let's fix that, right? And so it gives you and it gives the student the ability to process information. This worked, this didn't work, and this is why. And you actually have a metric to tell you whether or not it worked, okay. right? And yeah. it's that balance between speed and accuracy, which is, and, and these are things that haven't ever been possible before in a range training environment because you've never had the ability to give that data to students, that those data points have never been available. And we've also had never had the ability to drive the range, right? To control the range with a dynamic visual stimulus, even though that's the only thing that we do for real. The best we've had is turning targets. Um, yeah, that's what we had too. Like that was the limit of it. And yeah. it's broken 99% of the time. <laughs> it's, it's broken 99% of the time. And, and frankly, you know, uh, frankly, it's, it's kind of a fundamentally flawed model, right? Like you may be going off of a visual stimulus, but reality is you usually hear it before it yeah. comes, right? So you're typically going off the audio. You anyway. hear the air and compressor then, kind of going in the back. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. And it's also, if you think about turning targets, right? It's a very binary shoot or don't shoot. 
and even that phrase, right, which we've been using for you know the last 50 years, shoot, don't shoot training, that's fundamentally flawed because that's not what we deal with in the real world. It's not you're either a don't shoot or I burn you down and I just keep shooting you until you disappear. Mm-hmm. Right. That that's not the real world, right? Like we may make a decision to shoot, go get the gun out, right? Which may take a little bit of time. And it's not a shoot anymore by the time the gun comes out. Yeah. Right. And if we don't have those again, going to the circuit board, if the circuit board doesn't have a camera on it, that continues to process information, you're not going to see that the gun's just coming out and you're going to burn this guy down while he's standing there being like, Oh, I just put the gun on the ground, (laughs) you know? And in the era of body cameras, that doesn't work real well. Yeah. Well, yeah. And lots of stuff's changing. Um, we're just kind of at the end of the time here. I definitely am going to have to get you back on because, uh, you brought up one of the points there about, uh, I was reading, uh, an article on your website about firearm training, preventing de-escalation. So yep. I'd like to get more into that. Um, but I do just at the end here, want to give you a chance to say how people can follow you and find your work. And I'll post links in the episode description okay. after as well. Yep. Uh, so the best way to get in touch with me or to, to kind of look at what we're doing is buildingshooters.com. I think we're on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, and you can find all that, all those links on the, on the buildingshooters.com page. Um, but that that that's really the, the best way to get in touch with, yeah. with us and to kind of see what we're doing and learn about neuro. Um, we also have, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this, um, if for people listening to this in the U.S., we do also have a affiliated nonprofit called the Saving Lives USA Foundation. That's uh, savinglivesusa.org is the website. Um, and so the, the, the purpose of that is um, the, the charter is re- a reduction in the social harm resulting from police and security service use of force. Um, and it's kind of based on a, a fundamental recognition that the training processes that we have for armed professionals are not capable of producing competence, right? It's not, it's not to say that all police officers are incompetent, but the ones that are competent at that stuff did it on their own Yeah. outside of the, for, for the most part, right? That's a very broad brushstroke. For the most part, they did it on their own outside of the agency provided training. And that's just, that should not be, you know, that that's not how this should work. Um, you know, law enforcement is part of their job is killing civilians on purpose. You know, we don't want to do that a lot, right? But that's part of the job description. And there's a reasonable expectation, I think, that police officers should have that their agency is going to prepare them for that part of the job. Yeah. The public certainly has what is a reasonable expectation that people are good at that. Um, and and neither one of those things is true. And so that's that's really what that organization is, is founded to fix. And I think there's also... Um, uh, there's a lot of positive narratives that that can be made, right? Like you've got this discussion between cops and and civilians that has come really, really toxic in the last you know five six years or so, um, and a lot of it is because people will jump to their respective corners and be like, oh, you know, yeah, blue this or <laughs> you know, the, and it's like, it, dude, like like let let's look at the reality, which is that we're not very good at this stuff in the aggregate. And a lot of that is because we don't do a good job preparing people for it. So let's acknowledge that we have some real deficiencies and let's go fix them. Right. Like, and I think there's an opportunity for a very positive narrative there of working on, like, let's, let's be good at this part of the job. We're like acknowledging that we're not and acknowledging what we can do to get better at it. Yeah. And that's why I brought up the thing earlier, even about the articulation and, you know, you just have, you can have three people at the same thing yep. dealing with the same person, but each one of them is perceiving it totally different. And that again yep. is up to their articulation too. Um, yeah, you're doing some awesome stuff. I'll put those links up. Uh, I'm just going to remind people if they can follow the choir professional as well. Give us a like, a rating, comment, whatever platform you follow us on. 
um, check us out. And uh, I'm always happy to see the reviews. So um, we'll end it there. I want to say thanks, Dustin, for coming on the show. And just hang on for two seconds. I'll chat with you offline. Sounds good. Appreciate it.